Turn it up. Playing this for no reason other than I was chatting with my producer about The Cure. And, you know, I was never a huge fan. I wasn't a goth. I wasn't into emo. I had an afro, so my hair wouldn't stand up. But this song, this song here, it must be one of the most beautifully crafted songs of all time. Tori Amos, she covered it. Adele covered it. Is this song in the top 20 songs of all time? Text me, yes, to 2101. Um, do you agree with that, Ella? Do, do you hear the song and you go, this has got to be one of the best? It's definitely a moment in my life. It's the sort of thing that, given the weather, we could hunger down and listen to with our joy friends. <laughs> Or husband or wife or significant other or lover, as someone texted here. Peter Field, were you ever, uh, as a young person growing up in New York City, a fan of The Cure? Oh, the, the album, Disintegration. Yeah. Just play it, just play it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think Ella's right. I think we're on to something here about uh, somehow it doesn't matter what you call your significant other if you can play these lyrics together. <laughs> <laughs> um Yes, well, I loved it. One person agrees with me. Yes, the cure rocks. Uh, Wallace, I met my wife at 65 on Tinder. I'm her toy boy. But (laughs) what is wrong with just his or her Christian name, says Dave? Another one here in Māori, you can just say Maitane or Wahine. And another one here, I've been married for 30 years, but I've never felt comfortable with wife or husband. It just feels repressive. And I don't know why, says Bronnie. Then again, I've never changed my name. Just maybe it's me. Uh, loving your company this afternoon. Thank you for all your correspondence. Uh, you can text me, 2101, or you can email me, thepanel at rnz.co.nz. This afternoon, I am with Dr. Ella Henry, Director of Māori Advancement at AUT's Business School. Also, Peter Field. He is Associate Professor in History at the University of Canterbury and to an education subject now, the literacy and mathematics levels of Kiwi kids. It's been a hot topic this year, has it not? Earlier in the year, a new literacy strategy was announced after it was reported that nearly one in five 15 year olds are not meeting the lowest benchmark for reading and a further 20% are only achieving at the most basic level. New research has now taken a look at how kids who struggle with reading and maths as teenagers could be impacted later in life. And one of those researchers is Professor Gail Pacheco, Director of the NZ Work Research Institute at AUT, with us to break down those results and how it impacts later in life. Professor Pacheco, kia ora, welcome to the panel. Thank you, Kira. So this, we know about the literacy, we know about the that and the uh, the low levels in mass, but how it flows on to affect later in life. Tell us about the research you did. Well, I think what this research really shows is the impact it has on quite a range of areas of people's lives. Because what we do is we we look at fifteen year olds with and their assessment and reading and math skills. And then we follow them for 10 years uh, through to when they're about 25, 26. And we can see it has effects in education, in the labor market, but also in terms of hospitalization and justice outcomes, 
it's quite wide range, wide ranging, and it shows literacy and numeracy. You really do those skills permeate through such a wide uh, number of aspects of life. What in particular most surprised you or most concerned you? I think there's a couple of things. So the first one would be that the magnitude of some of the differences uh, are quite alarming. So, for instance, uh, those with low reading and math skills, almost a quarter of that group have a criminal conviction by the time they're 25. Right. And this is compared to 8% of the group that uh, are higher skilled. Um, so that was one area of surprise, that magnitude of difference. The, another area that I think is quite worrying is related to ethnic differences in both the educational and the labour market outcomes. You explain so, that a bit. So Māori don't seem to benefit the same way from higher skills in um, the way New Zealand Europeans do. So, for example, we found that Māori in the higher skill group, uh, so who have better reading and math skills, have similar average earnings to the New Zealand Europeans who had low literacy and numeracy. So they weren't getting the uh, the returns to those uh, better skills. Right. We've got uh, a couple of educators on the panel, as I said, Gail. Um, uh, Ella, let's bring you in. Mm, kia ora first, Gail. Lovely to hear you. Um, so I got turfed out of school when I was um, 15 in Form 4. Did you? I was rot. I was a little shocker. I didn't go to university till I was 31. But one of the things that, because of the variety of work that I did in the interim, was I read a lot. I found stuff to read. Mm. And so when I did start university much later in life, I had a vocabulary. And so what I've learned as an educator over the last 35 years, particularly of Māori, is trying to find ways to encourage them to enjoy reading. And really, university plies you with really hard, difficult stuff to read. You can literally see the lights going out in young folks' eyes sometimes mm. when you give them a turgid text to read. But if we could somehow or other inspire a greater passion for reading then I think that that has a flow-on effect to broadening the mind and opening oneself up to to learning in all sorts of other ways. I mean, so that, that was certainly my experience. Yeah, so turfed out of school at 14, back to university, uh, 31, here you are as a director uh, at the School of Business. So these stats really um, uh, reflect, in a way, much of your life. And let's let's not forget that many, particularly students of colour, do not necessarily have the most fruitful experience. And this is not to slur my friends and colleagues who are teachers, but the mm. system often, there's so much structural racism embedded in our education system um, that sometimes by the time they reach adolescence, young people have simply lost the will to learn because they don't feel valued because of their cultural identity. Okay, um, respond to that, Gal. We'll go to Peter. Yeah, I think that's quite true in terms of the learning needs to be relatable as well. So it needs to be, you know, texts and reading. And we've just been doing a workshop here um, in Wellington at the moment on literacy. And um, my Māori colleagues and Pacific colleagues have been doing work alongside this research in the qualitative space all talk about the interventions here need to be relatable. They need to be doing reading that is relatable to their culture as well. Now, Peter Field, uh, you also uh, work in this uh, educative sector, I guess. How did you see the, see the results? You want to explain how did you, uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts? Well, I'm going to be a little prospective instead of retrospective and, and note that 
that almost everyone now has this thing in their hand called social media and the phone, these phones. And so I think we best focus on these problems because if, if we're struggling now, I can't imagine how much worse it's only going to get around reading, around education, because we're so distracted by distractions already. Um, so I think we ought to solve, <laughs> try to solve some of these problems. Um, I, I would, Wallace, I would, and Gail, I would look at things a little bit beyond education. That seems to be a little narrow, in, even though I'm a university professor. Um, I think that actually it's meaning in life. And if people find a love, a focus, a success, wherever it is, and they devote themselves to it, I think they're going to find very good outcomes in life, both personally, psychologically, and socially. So I, I wouldn't okay. focus strictly on education, even though this has been the study. The point is, let's get over that. It's just people have to have great meaning in their lives. And usually that's about someone other than themselves. So if they find love, if they find meaning, if they find a focus, then I think most people find um, reasons to succeed in life. That's very interesting, uh, Gail. I mean, that's that makes the issue a little bit wider. But uh, I think that many listeners to this might relate. For example, myself, who really uh, I did uh, a degree, but I just fell into broadcasting by accident when I was at a very low end, and it did give that sense of meaning doing something day by day. Yeah, and I would agree too. I think that's why our study wanted to look at quite a wide range of outcomes, not just your typical, how are they doing in the labor market? Have they got steady employment and what are their earnings like? And that's why we also look at, you know, mental health and uh, hospitalization or physical health as well as justice, just to, to see if, are there other well-being differences? And in some, actually, I should point out, um, in terms of mental health, there wasn't much, uh, there was minimal difference between the two population groups. Uh, but in physical health and in justice outcomes, there were wide um, divergences there. Hey, thanks for being on the program, Gail. Really interesting uh, research. Kia ora. That's Professor Gail uh, Pacheco. Before we go on, uh, Ella, because it really fascinates me how you, you, you start, well, how people get ignited by reading. Where does it come from? How did it start with you, if you can recall? As you, so you, you know, here you are, um, not so good at school, turfed out. Where was the ignition for picking up that book and reading? How, how did that come about? I, I spent four years pretty, pretty much living on the ocean. I, I did two seasons in, on prawn trawlers in Australia Goodness. and um, two years delivering yachts in the Indian Ocean and, and the Pacific. And when you're locked in the middle of the ocean on a 40-foot yacht with two other people, <laughs> books are really, really fabulous after two months. Um, so, and it, was, it inspired my passion and travel and, you know, getting wow. to know about the world. But... Um, that I think, I, I think that you're right, Peter. It's it's about helping people to find their passion. For me, it was being on the ocean because I come from an ocean-going culture. I don't know, um, you know, being surrounded by books that I wanted to read and I enjoyed. Those those are the things that I think some of our students miss out on in the formal education system. Kia ora, Alan. It's fifteen to five. The panel, RNZ National, Peter Field and. Ella Henry with me this afternoon. Thank you very much for listening today. Artist and activist Tame Iti caused quite a stir this week when he ventured into the QT Hotel lobby in Wellington. They've got lots of great artworks in that lobby, by the way, famed for its collection of artworks, and corrected the spelling of his name 
on a piece by artist Dean Proudfoot. The painting depicts a Tame holding a gun and a skull in front of an Aussie flag on the ground with the text below reading, Tama, incorrect spelling, performs in a New Zealand landscape. So a video was posted of Tame walking up to the painting, crossing out the letters of his misspelt name with red paint and repainting the correction above. Now, the original artist, Dean Prout, Dean Proudfoot, he loves it. He said Tame is the, quote, epitome of what makes our country special. But Chris Parkin, he owns the artwork. He said vandalism and expects the police to prosecute. To offer his perspective, we're now joined by David Allsop, director of Sweet Gallery. And David represents the work of Tame Iti. Kia ora, David. Kia ora, Wallace. Hello, Peter. Listeners. Yeah, what was your... Initial reaction to this? Did you have a heads up that this was going to happen? What? No, I saw a post uh, prior to the intervention taking place indicating that the name had been spelt wrong. And when the intervention took place, my first thought actually was another great chapter in New Zealand art history has just unfolded. Um, I was excited by it because... um, I've started to view this this episode, for want of a better description, as a as an art performance in itself, and I don't think there's any doubt now that that art work is has considerable more mana and gravitas attached to oh, it. Let's not forget value. Let's not forget value, um, David. It'll jump up by well, about ten grand. No, yeah, but it's not all about money, Wallace. We of course, about this on the show before. It, it's about provenance. It's a, it's about stories attaching to objects. And that whole instant now of Tame intervening with the artwork is part of the fabric of that art piece, and I think that's quite exciting for it. Yeah, well, let's bring our panel, because uh, the original artist, he loves it. He says uh, it was a mistake, a clear lack of research on my behalf. The owner doesn't agree. Ella? Well, I just think it's outrageous. I mean, I agree entirely. that The value of that, it's like a Banksy piece, you know. It's just quadrupled <laughs> in value. It would because have. Because that, that's how much Tummy's paintings are worth now. Mm. Um, so we've created two pieces of art. But the, the sheer fact that somebody could think that a person who has been abused, and that was, is what it is, by having their name, their identity, and their culture made wrong and then replacing it, and renewing it and reinvigorating, I cannot believe the attitude of the owner. I am utterly appalled, okay. and I personally am never going to stay at that hotel again. Really? Really? Yep. I feel strongly. I feel strongly. Wow. Stay there, David. Peter Field. Yep. Well, right. Um, we, we looked at this, and it is a bit of performance art, and I guess why not, why not make a spectacle? Um, I note that he didn't fix it. He crossed out the error. So I think the error is meant to stay forever so that we can reflect on the error in spelling as opposed to correcting it. Um, who is it that said that, that contemporary art was exactly that? It was a con and it was temporary? Hmm. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Maybe a listener might uh, text them with the answer there. But uh, just finally, um, to, to, to you, uh, to you, David, and perhaps to you, Ella, just playing advocate here, might there have been another response to it? You know, this is a, a canvas, uh, a canvas that uh, Dean did. It's his work. It's owned by someone else. Would there be, Ella, would there have been another route, for example, emailing Dean saying, could you please take that work off and correct it yourself or do another one or in future um, 
spell my name right. Rather uh, than just... go, rather than going into the hotel uh, and doing it yourself. Well, just as an aside, Muru, the film which has Tamir as, as its centre, is New Zealand's entry in the Olymp- in the uh, Oscars. It's been accepted, and so so this is a story about Tamir, who is himself a piece of art. He is, in fact, a repository of 60 years of protest of the evolution of our culture and our society as a country, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Everything he does is absolutely fabulous. I think the person who owns that painting should be extremely grateful, quite frankly. David? Yeah, I mean, there, there are, of course, there would have been another option to have contacted the artist and, and potentially had, um, had the work revisited. It wouldn't have been nearly as exciting or brought so much attention to the art piece um, going that route. And it may never have been concluded. I mean, Chris may not have been willing for the artwork to have been adjusted in any way. So I do really feel for Tummy here. Um, you know, he's the centre of the piece. He's um, been represented in a way that his name is incorrectly stated. And I think fair play to him. David also Kiaram, thank you very much uh, for that. That's uh, David also director of Sweet Galley, who represents their work. Uh, and I must say, um, awesome work that it is uh, of Tame Eti. You've heard Dr. Ella Henry say that she'll um, probably think again um, if she wants to uh, ever visit the QT Hotel in Wellington again. So interesting stuff. Look forward to your thoughts on that. You can text me at 2101. Finally, though, uh, leaving the big smoke, we've had a bit of uh, feedback on this. Uh, It often comes up as a subject. What if you made the daring move to move from, say, Tamaki Makoto to a tiny central Togo town? What would life be like? And have you moved from big city to small town? Do you regret it? A survey found recently that one third of Aucklanders considered leaving in five years. Why? One money, two traffic, three safety. With us, uh, first we've got a couple of guests on this, is Sophie Westacott. Sophie, kia ora. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Kia ora. Where did you move from then to? Um, from from Beverly Hills in Los Angeles to um, 12 Queen Street, Pahitua, which is okay. near Woodville. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, from Beverly Hills to Pahitua, how did you find the transition? Um, I'm still in the transition, but um, it was a pretty easy call. Um, my, my grandmother... Um, needed um, care so that she could um, stay in her own home. Um, she's 95, and so my whanau all chipped in, and I needed to be a part of that. She's my, you know, she's the most precious person, which she was. She mm. just passed away two days ago. But, um, yeah, mm. she's, she's very precious to me, so I came home, and I've been here nine months. Kia ora, Sophie. Uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm sorry to hear that, and I really appreciate you being with us. Um, you said it wasn't easy, but... You don't regret no, it? No, don't regret it. I've actually just started a whole new life now. No, I mean, it's not like I... I, I did pop back to Los Angeles for two weeks in June, but, um, you know, I came back again, and I'm really happy, and I'm starting a, I'm starting my career again on the on the 10th of October and going to work down in Wellington. So, no, I'm, I'm really happy that I spent nine months in my own country in mm. a small rural town. Thanks, Ben. It was a treasure. Thanks for joining us, Sophie. Thank you. 
and with us also, we'll get our panel first but uh, soon, but uh, let's jump over to Jen Kirkhofer, who's also one of these people, originally from San Francisco, but spent many years in uh, Tamaki Makaura, Auckland. Jen, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Kia ora. So, so what was your, you spent many, what was your decision to move from Auckland? Well, from Auckland was maybe both complicated but also really straightforward. I was just looking for a good opportunity to move somewhere that wasn't Auckland because I had only lived in Auckland for three and a half years but felt like there's a lot more to New Zealand than, than it. And so I was really just kind of looking for a good opportunity to move out and um, explore more. And so I ended up accepting a job at the Wedderburn Tavern in central Otago. The Wedderburn uh, Tavern! <laughs> yes. Famous, but, but, Jean, there's nothing there. I, well, except for the tavern. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, and, but it's it's the beating heart of this of this community. Yeah, and that's whoo, that is tiny. <laughs> that is tiny. Uh, from is. San Fran to Auckland to a, a tavern in the middle of beautiful country, but it is nowhere. Peter Field, um, can you relate to this <laughs> going from New York City to Auckland? <laughs> um, sorry, well, you know sorry, what, it's Christchurch. It's such a funny thing. It all depends. Uh, Atatai, uh, some people left Atatai because they're going to a small town where if you come from New York, you feel like you're moving to a small town. Yeah. So it is all relative, yeah. that's for sure. Just, it just, is. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Ella? I, I come from a place called Ahipara in the far, far north. And my parents moved to the city when I was six years old because they realized all my brothers and sisters had moved to the city. And if they ever wanted to get to know their grandchildren, then they were going to have to come to town. So they put me in the back of the truck and drove to the city. Um, and for the very same reason, I'm going to stay here because my children, my adults right. now, are, are global citizens. And if I want to hang out with my grandchildren, I'm going to have to live in Auckland. But I always Auckland. go home to Ahipara for holiday. Oh, cute, Ella. And what a beautiful part of the country that is. Gosh. Um, Jen, Wedderburn, right? Yep, Wedderburn. <laughs> it doesn't have a sky tower or fine no. dining. Do, no. you miss, do you miss all that? Well, frankly, the food at the tavern is pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, but, but I feel like whenever you move around, and I've moved around quite a bit, I've always followed my career. And so anywhere you leave, you miss certain things, right? And it's a trade-off. Um, but yeah. for me, living here has been such an amazing experience. It's been almost six months. Um, but for some of the things that I do miss and some of the conveniences of, of living in a city, there's just so much more that I've gained with the amazing people here. I mean, the community is just incredible. Yeah. And um, I've never lived in even a small town, let alone, you know, rural life and it's just it's super cool and no i don't have the ocean anymore but i have these amazing mountains and um it just you know there's cool farm animals everywhere and um it's just it's a really fun experience and i'm really glad to be doing it yeah linda <laughs> linda says i moved from auckland to north hokianga 20 years ago i've never regretted it likely to regret it even less if auckland ends up uh with uh, a mayor that i don't like uh, says someone but that 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 notion of um finding your place in life, yeah. finding, finding where it sounds like it's been a real journey for you, Jen, going from San Fran to Auckland, and now you just seem and feel, and it's, you, can sound, you, you can hear it, you, <laughs> you seem so happy 
in the little, the tiny village of Wedderburn. Right. Yeah, I am. It's it's an absolute blast, and I work at the pub a few days a week, and I carry on my other work, which I can do from anywhere. So I've still got my career, and and then I work at the pub a few days a week, which which frankly is a blast. So. <laughs> Beautiful, Jen. Hey, thanks for being with us. Kia ora. Thank you for your time. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Just uh, on that notion of a belonging, uh, I guess, Peter, and uh, and missing home, when you, you, you came back from New York City, and some people have been lucky enough to visit uh, that area, do you miss New York? Well, it, it's a strange thing. Certainly the smells... Um, some things just automatically make you nostalgic, which means sort of painful memories. You just remember things in a certain way that just get inside you, and you can't really judge them. It's just the way it is. But we love New Zealand, and we consider mm. Aotearoa our home completely and would never look back. Welcome, Kia ora. Not Good to have you, Peter and Ella. Henry, thank you very much for your time. You've both been absolutely wonderful. Uh, the best fish and chips ever eaten are to be found in Lynn's Kitchen in the Wedderburn pub. Going out on a bit of cure, uh, taking you to Nick Truebridge on Checkpoint. I'm Wallace Chapman, back with you 3.45 tomorrow.